Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration, and information on writing, publishing options, and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint, and lots more information at thecreativepen.com. And that's pen with a double N. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 497 of the podcast and it is Friday 10th of July 2020 as I record this. So today I'm talking to Philip Athens about writing monsters. Now monsters tap into something primal that lies at the heart of being human. We've always feared what lies at the edge of the campfire just out of sight and as writers tapping into those fears can be a powerful form of creation. And in this interview, Phil talks about how and why we find monsters so fascinating, how to create them and why they can sometimes be a metaphor for society. And it is mostly a craft interview about writing, but towards the end, I ask about his career and multiple streams of income because Phil is a working writer with lots of different things. And he says, walk through the door that's open, which is really interesting. It's about taking opportunities in the direction of your goals and dreams, even if sometimes you didn't expect that door to be open. (laughs) And also concentrate on the one thing you have control over, the quality of your work. Definitely something to hold on to in a time where we control very little of what's going on right now. So that is coming up. In publishing news, I think the most interesting thing I've seen this week, and it's really inspired my imagination, is Brandon Sanderson's Kickstarter for the 10th anniversary edition of The Way of Kings. Now, it doesn't matter if you don't like fantasy, because this is fascinating. As I record this, his Kickstarter is almost at £4 million, so that is over $5 million, for the Dragonsteel 10th anniversary leather edition of The Way of Kings. Now, it says each volume is bound in a dark blue bonded leather with a hubbed spine and foil stamping in two colours on the front, back and spine. And there's all of this stuff. Just go and watch the video because uh, it'll just make you want to create something so beautiful. And this kind of hybrid project is perfect for those who have a large audience and it works with the publisher's goals and fans love it. Plus it contains a load of original art. So this Kickstarter will pay a lot of people, not just Brandon Sanderson, not just the publisher. And uh, there's a five minute video which also has a little piece with Brandon, which is lovely because he's such a great author and just obviously a total geek like many in (laughs) the community. And uh, he's obviously not that comfortable with it, but he's just brilliant. So I really recommend you watching that. The book is truly gorgeous. It's two volumes and I'm not even a fan of his work and yet I wanted to buy it. (laughs) Now, my friend and founder of the Alliance of Independent Authors, Orna Ross, who is a poet and a fiction author as well, did a crowdfunding campaign for her hardback embossed edition of Secret Rose, which I do have, I did buy. And this is something I have thought about. I would like to do special editions at some point. And crowdfunding is essentially pre-orders that fund the print run of a special edition. Now, obviously, people do Kickstarters for lots of things. Dean Wesley Smith and Christine Catherine Rush do a lot of Kickstarters. Obviously, a lot of gaming people do. I've never done any crowdfunding, but I feel like when I do one, and I will at some point, whether it's Kickstarter or something else, it will be around a physical object. And it's a good reminder that publishing and being an independent creative 
encompasses a whole lot of different projects and fans want all kinds of different things. And we're also watching at the moment on the BBC a show called The Repair Shop, which is, I mean, we have finished Warrior Nuns, which looks like it will get a second series. It's so popular right now. So it's kind of gone from this religious thriller with lots of fight scenes to this lovely, gentle repair shop, which is uh, this team repair people's loved historical objects like a music box bombed in the war or a rocking horse with the signature of a loved one who died on its back. And uh, it's a very emotional show, like literally in the first episode, you're tearing up. (laughs) And it made me think about our books because many of the objects they're repairing on the repair shop are some are 50 years old, 100 years old, more than that. And it's with our books. Yes, I do have some hardback editions, but they're print on demand and they're great. And I have paperback print editions. I have large print, but these are not going to last 50 years. I mean, a hardback might do if you keep it in a pristine condition, but they're not embossed or with all the special features you can do with print books. And they are still, I guess, mass market items. And I would love to do something that is truly long lasting, like those Brandon Sanderson editions, they really will last a long time. They are beautiful. And I had Lisa Van Pelt on the show a while back for an episode on bookbinding, which you can find in the in the archives, or I'll link to it in the show notes. And I love the maker movement. The maker movement is all, we are part of the maker movement. The in, indie authors are part of it. But the physical objects, I don't think that indie authors have done enough around beautiful physical objects yet. And I hope we make that part of our indie future. Like, you know, what Brandon's doing there is really a hybrid project with a publisher and working with a lot of artists. And I just love the idea. I I love it. So I want to make that part of, I'll say part of my next decade as a creative, I want to create some beautiful physical objects around my work. And uh, my theme for this year was actually Operation Evergreen. And I feel that the only books that I would consider doing would be the fiction or memoir or perhaps something like The Successful Author Mindset, which is evergreen in that it will always be true. (laughs) What's in The Successful Author Mindset will always be true for any writer. (laughs) So that is truly evergreen too. But I do feel like we should aim to do more of these beautiful objects and uh, work with professional publishers in that way to do it. And I love this. I think we're, you know, being an independent means working with brilliant creatives. And I love that we can be sort of self-funding within the community. So that's very exciting. So then in my personal update, I had three days off. (laughs) Yay! And I feel so much better. Who knew that stopping work actually makes you feel better? I mean, seriously, who knew that? (laughs) And it's funny because I was thinking, and you can probably tell with my voice, I have so much more energy. And the last real days off I had were in Bilbao when we went to Bilbao and San Sebastian in February before the pandemic. And the kind of anxiety of the early pandemic and the fear and the sort of needing to triage and shore up the business. And I have been working like crazy for four months, you know, every weekend, every minute I possibly was not sleeping because of that energy driven by fear. And I feel like we can't keep living at this level of fear and exhaustion. And it's weird right now as obviously the audience to this show, hello everybody, is global. And what's strange is 
even though it's one disease and one virus, every country is at a different stage of the pandemic. And in the UK, we're starting to come out of it. But many places are still right in the middle of it or, you know, seeing really difficult times. So and some places, I mean, I keep pointing to Vietnam, I think, is and uh, Kerala in India. These places have done so well, like they haven't had to lock down. They've just done brilliantly and have had sort of 20 deaths. And big countries like the US and the UK have just not done as well. <laughs> It just shows you, doesn't it? But um, the pandemic clearly isn't over. The systemic and economic changes are not over. But I want to start moving on in terms of we can start our new lives now based on the decisions we might have considered in lockdown and the lives we want to lead. I've certainly thought a lot about what I want during the sort of lockdown period, really considering what's important. And I feel like I had put those changes into the future and said, okay, when this is over, I will. Or, you know, when there's a vaccine, I will do this. And now I think, okay, who knows when or if these things will actually happen? You know, I need to stop waiting for the end in inverted commas. There may not be like, you know, in movies, I think we've all got used to these pandemic movies where it's like, now there's a vaccine and now it's all over. (laughs) I almost feel like what might happen is this sort of slow slide into the new normal. That's what it feels like here in the UK right now is you can go to the shops, you can go to the pub, you can go to a restaurant and even the gyms are going to be opening in the next couple of weeks and you think okay so we just have to live this way now. So my question is what do you want to change or start doing? What do you want to aim for? What are the lessons that you can take from the pandemic now and start to put into action instead of waiting for the end of it in some way? Obviously, you're not going to, I mean, I'm not going to go off traveling right now. Those plans will wait. But what I can do is, you know, go for bigger walks or, you know, get back into some of the things I was doing before, but also change the things I want to change in my business and my mindset I need to get on with now. So I hope that's interesting. And don't worry, the podcast is definitely part of my life. And in fact, it's more important than ever, because when I look at what I'm cutting away, I'm winding many things back. But the podcast is now my primary, my primary content marketing, but also my creative side. So, and also the way I can help people in the community. So uh, yeah, let's think about this in a positive sense. And what can we start doing that does not mean we have to wait until the end, whatever that may be. So in useful stuff, uh, before I crashed, (laughs) I finished doing my new tutorials and also updated my author blueprint. So I just re-recorded all three of my website and email list tutorials. You can go to thecreativepen.com forward slash author website. And there are detailed tutorials, step-by-step technical tutorials on setting up your author website really fast. It takes like not very long at all, minutes in fact now to set up a website, but then how to spend a little bit longer installing and setting up your author pro theme, which is what I use at jfpen.com. I know many of you have used my tutorial and also my affiliate links. Thank you very much. Uh, I've also got a third video on how to set up your email list with ConvertKit and things have definitely moved on with ConvertKit. There is now a free level for up to a thousand subscribers and they have great landing pages. And in fact, (laughs) I am updating things based on doing the tutorials because in doing them, I learned about some of the new 
features. So check it out if you want to use and have a sign up page on your website. You don't need to have WordPress to use ConvertKit. The other two tutorials are on WordPress, but even if you don't use WordPress, you can have a check out of that third video. Uh, so go to thecreativepen.com forward slash author website. Things have definitely got easier. There are better designs. There are, it's less technical than it used to be. So hopefully you're going to find these tutorials helpful. Things have definitely got easier. And as I said, I'm actually redoing my own stuff because there's some really cool designs. On the author blueprint, if you are subscribed to my email list, you can just re-download that and I'll be sending out an email to the list with a reminder on that. And if you're not on my email list, check it out at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. It's just a, basically a free ebook on lots of stuff, writing, publishing, book marketing, etc. Okay, so thanks for your emails and tweets and comments this week. Clearly, Marion's interview last week on memoir resonated. I have had so many comments and tweets and emails, more than I have done for ages. In fact, it was probably up there with Michael Brent Collings's interview on depression a while back, which definitely resonated as well. And it's so interesting because and many of you, in fact, Will said, this was one of those episodes where I was planning on just listening to the intro since I had no interest in writing a memoir. Now I totally want to write a memoir. <laughs> Marion did a wonderful job in explaining what a memoir was versus an autobiography. I haven't read any memoirs up to this point, but now plan on checking a few out from my library, which is brilliant. And it's so funny because Will put that comment on pretty quick after it, the interview came out. And then I just had so many people saying the same thing, like, oh, I wasn't going to listen because I don't want to write a memoir. But then I listened and now I want to. <laughs> which is lovely. Uh, I'm definitely back much more on thinking about my own memoir project. I've got some other ideas. Marguerite said, excellent interview. Lovely to discover Marion and her podcast. Great approach, accessible and intelligent. Indeed. Alex said, your interview with Marion Roach-Smith really struck a chord when she said you shouldn't tell people the plot of your book, rather find a universal message. Jacqueline Rowe said, this interview is fantabulous or fabulous. <laughs> I have shied away from marketing my memoir and focused my business around my YA fantasy. Now my mind is thinking through new ideas of what I can do to connect with more readers. Fantastic. One more. Trisha said, that was a fantastic interview. It clarified so much about memoir writing. I've only recently stumbled onto this form of writing. I had fun writing it, but it seemed like a collection of vignettes with no plot. Readjustment in process. I'm on track now. Fantastic. Okay, so today's show is sponsored by Pro Writing Aid, writing and editing software that goes way beyond just grammar and typo checking. I put my latest novel, Map of the Impossible, through Pro Writing Aid before it went to my proofreader, and it really is brilliant. What makes it stand out is the ability to use Scrivener. So basically, I opened Map of the Impossible, the Scrivener file in Pro Writing Aid and was able to go through the whole book. This is brilliant because it really helps things like consistency. And of course, I still used a proofreader, but getting a whole bulk of it fixed before even going is so useful. It goes into things like word overuse, sentence variation, which is something that you can't see in your own work. Some people think, well, why should I even consider writing software? But before you send a book to an editor, it's a good idea to make it the best that you can make it. Improve your passive voice, which is always an issue for writers. In fact, I've got my mum using this now. I was like, mum, I think you should just 
watch this tutorial and it will really help. So my mum is writing her, what, sixth Penny Appleton book now. So got her using that as well. So it's uh, not technical. My mum is not technical and you can definitely use Pro Writing Aid. It goes into things like repeated words as well as commas, which are my own personal nemesis. You can also switch the type of English you want to use. And if you're a word nerd, they have this very cool thing called the Word Explorer, which goes way beyond the thesaurus. And basically, I find pro writing to be the best, I think, writing help. <laughs> In fact, it really is pro writing aid. <laughs> You can tell I haven't written this down properly. <laughs> and I switched from Grammarly to using Pro Writing Aid because of the ease of use with Scrivener and the fact that it is much better for long form writing. So you can check out the free edition or get 25% off the premium edition, which is also a very good value, by using my link, prowritingaid.com forward slash Joanna, J-O-A-N-N-A. I've also done a tutorial, so you can go through that at thecreativepen.com forward slash prowritingaid tutorial. So yeah, go and check that out. Links in the show notes. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time in creating the show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons. Thanks to everyone supporting the show, especially in these crazy times. Thanks to those of you who have continued to support the show. And I completely uh, appreciate you continuing. And also to those who've upped your pledges. Really brilliant. Thank you. Thanks to everyone who's been supporting long term. Also to new patrons this week, Ava Brenner. Mojo O, which is very cool. <laughs> Emma Desi, Deeglan Ohoda, and I'm sorry, I probably mangled that. <laughs> uh, Shy, L. E. Meerman, Lee Evie, and Lucia Jacobs, or Lucia Jacobs. Thank you so much, everyone. I really appreciate your support on Patreon. It demonstrates you enjoy the show and want it to continue as we head towards 500 episodes. You can support the show for just a couple of dollars a month and you will get the backlist Q&A audio and you can ask questions and you can be part of the Patreon crew. And you can support the show at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash the creative pen. And I will probably do the next Q&A this week. So come and support the show. And oh, also you get percentage off, you get 10% off my courses. So that is hopefully useful as well. Right, let's get into the interview. Philip Athens is the New York Times bestselling author of Annihilation and a dozen other books, including The Guide to Writing Fantasy and Science Fiction. He's also an editor, professional speaker and writing coach. And today we're talking about writing monsters, how to craft believably terrifying creatures to enhance your horror, fantasy and science fiction. Welcome, Phil. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Oh, I'm so excited about this. I bought the book ages ago and then I read it quite recently and I was like, oh my goodness, I really want to talk to you <laughs> because I feel like there are some of us who get excited about monsters and everyone else has now turned off the show anyway, so we can just get into it. <laughs> so um, let's start with a definition. What is a monster anyway? And what are the characteristics that are most important? For me, and this was really what writing monsters is mostly about, is monsters as a supernatural force. So this isn't really a book about the serial killer that everyone sort of thinks of as a monster or someone like Hitler was a monster, things like that. For me, that using that term to apply to a person is kind of a way to dehumanize evil and say that these are somehow not humans anymore, somebody who can do these terrible things. It's a way for the rest of us to sort of push away and say, oh, that's not in me. I don't have that in me. Mm. And hopefully 
I don't believe that I have an inner Hitler. I'm very happy to report that. (laughs) (laughs) I think most people really don't go anywhere near to that territory. But at the same time, he wasn't a monster created in some sort of other dimension or something like that. He was a person who did terrible things. So for writing monsters, this was really about four horror authors, supernatural horror authors, fantasy authors, science fiction, etc., where this monster is this living thing. And you can't see me do air quotes around living. So is it some kind of mechanical creature or something like that that we're afraid of, but we don't understand it? So I, I think if you looked at just a photograph of a great white shark, it's the scariest monster I can even think of. <laughs> it's just absolutely terrible. But we know what sharks are. There are books written about them. We've seen the Discovery Channel does a whole week of shark documentaries every year. So we understand it as an animal. But I think if you had never seen one, never heard of it, that would be a monster. A very dangerous thing, and I don't know what that is. Right, so it's scary, and we don't know how to connect with it in that we would do with another person. So do you think the fear is an important aspect? Because, of course, there's um, the classic, is it Pixar, the Monsters, Inc.? Mm-hmm. I mean, those right. are technically monsters, but they're not scary. <laughs> so they kind of created in the same way. Yeah, I think so. But, you know, I think what was kind of fun about Monsters, Inc. and about, like, the monsters on Sesame Street, you know, things like that, (laughs) is we're taking something that's scary and then we're making it not scary. So once you get to know those monsters as people, which I thought was really brilliant in Monsters, Inc., that the idea is that they're the scary thing that lives in your closet. But they're actually just regular guys who are going to work and that's sort of a thing that they do. (laughs) They work for, of course, the evil energy company, which is pretty easy to imagine. (laughs) The energy industry is is willing to do anything. And so that was that they turned the idea of a monster upside down. It was this living thing that we're afraid of, but don't understand. And we're afraid of it because we don't understand. But Mm. once we got to know them, we realized, oh, wait a minute. They're not so scary. Yeah, mm. they're yeah. just people. In order to, but obviously we're going to focus on the scary ones, but let's just talk about like, <laughs> why do we love monsters? I mean, clearly you and I are fans of monsters and things that are terrifying, but why are they so common in myth and legend as well as fiction? I wrote about this a lot in writing monsters and in other places. I think that for me, it kind of goes back or puts us back in touch monsters do with the predator-prey relationship which we've really, as humans, have exited that. You know, that's probably the main thing that we have accomplished as a species is to lift ourselves out of that. So sure, there are people who go hunting as a hobby, but there really isn't anyone who depends on that anymore. Since really the invention of agriculture and with the, the bow and arrow, the ability to kill at a distance, we've stopped being, I don't know about you, I'm in quarantine here, you know, for yes. the COVID virus. <laughs> but let's say I had a job that you know, took me outside of the house. There might be a lot of things that I'm afraid about in the Seattle area, but being attacked by a predatory animal is not one of them. There was a small bear that wandered into my backyard and the dogs went crazy, but we just sort of took cell phone pictures of it and thought it was really fascinating. I have never been afraid that somewhere between here and the supermarket, I'm going to be jumped by a tiger and (laughs) and killed. So what monsters do is they remind us of that, that they say, what if there is something out there that breaks through this sort of giant evolutionary hurdle that we've made, and now all of a sudden, I'm the prey? 
And certainly that's what Jaws was all about, was this idea that there actually is a wilderness, and that's the ocean, that once you step in there, you're way, way out of your element, and there is stuff in there that could actually eat you and doesn't know, hey, that's a human, you better hands off. So this, I think that's really the kind of the trigger that says, this is something to be afraid of because this is going to eat me. And it's not understanding that I have some sort of special, special privilege. Mm. But story-wise, give us a common enemy to struggle against. It's that everybody team up against the zombies. Dracula was really about, let's get some people together to combat this thing that came to England and is threatening our women. <laughs> and, <things laughs> like that. and then again, that's a, it plays on the fear of the unknown. This is something we don't know. We haven't identified this yet. We haven't tamed it. We haven't hunted it to extinction or to near extinction. So I think I know all of the animals in my neighborhood. And so if I see a raccoon, I'm not thrown into spasms of terror. Mm. But monsters are the thing that gets added to that comfortable world. Yeah, and I, I wonder if now, as you say, we're far removed from when originally tales were told and we were going hunting and all of that back in the day. But some mm -hmm. kind of collective memory or collective unconscious, as you know, Cole Young would have said, of this uh, fear that we're born with sure. of you know things in the dark and things hunting us and. Is it that we like, because I, I like reading the kind of cryptid books and I love Jurassic mm -hmm. Park and all of that type of thing. And I feel like, is it somehow cathartic that we're experiencing it in that way without obviously having to face something in real sure. life? Yeah. And I think there's so much of entertainment is that, right? Mm. <laughs> you know, I'm experiencing this thing that in real life I would avoid in any way I possibly could. And so there is this sense of, I'm scared, but I know I'm not in danger in any way sitting here reading a book or sitting in a movie theater. We get on roller coasters to sort of experience what it would be like to be in this kind of out-of-control vehicle, but we know that it's not out of control, that it's really just it that's on tracks, and but it just feels like it's scary for a second. Mm. <laughs> you know, that's sort of the thing that we're looking for is what would it be like to be hunted? What would it be like to be in a position where you're out of control completely and all of the sort of standard things that we feel like we can rely on are sort of stripped away from us. I like the fact that you said common enemy. I do read quite a lot of horror. I don't really watch horror movies, but I read quite a lot of horror. And that common enemy idea, and I think Jonathan Mabry says, it's not about the monster, it's about the people fighting the monster. And the hope that we can maybe kill the monster is that. So that common enemy, do you think that's really important in horror particularly? It can be. And that's the thing that one of the things I love about monsters is that they come in so many different varieties, not just in the sort of the furry monster or the slimy monster, that kind of thing physically, but they mean different things to the characters in each story. And they mean different things to, a, to each individual story. So that idea of, like, let's get together against this common enemy, that really drives books like It by Stephen King. But then a lot of times those monsters are the thing that brings out the good and evil in us. So that a zombie horde in something like Night of the Living Dead or The Walking Dead is really a natural disaster that's happening. And the story is in who is the person who's going to try to take advantage of that to seize power and become somebody like the governor and the walking dead, and who's going to rise to the occasion and become the hero. 
when faced with this horde of zombies that don't care. They don't have a plan. You know, they don't have a strategy. There's not some kind of political party that you can argue against. They're just a thing that moves through. Like a hurricane moves through or a tornado moves through your town. And there's no reasoning with it. It's just, am I going to be the person who runs into the burning building to save people? Or am I going to be the person who owns a gas station and all of a sudden raises the price to $20 a gallon because I think I can? So does that monster bring out the good or evil in people? And using Stephen King as another example, because why not, right? (laughs) 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 In The Mist, that's exactly what he does. He throws this collection of Lovecraftian monsters at people trapped in a supermarket. And they're entirely a force of nature. Some sort of disaster is happening. And then the people all trapped together then either rise to the occasion or crumble according to their own inner set of tools and assumptions and prejudices and things like that. So we see them turn on each other. We see them band together and try to help and be humans faced with the unknown. Mm. Do you have a great section on monsters as metaphor? So how do we think about that? So if we're planning to write like a monster book, like I have had monsters in my books, but I'd like to write just a good monster book. And mm-hmm. But how can we bring that deeper element? Is it, is it, as you say, reflecting on the meaning? So even in, let's take Jurassic Park, because I'm sure everyone's at least seen the movie, if not read the book. Mm-hmm. The book was much better, obviously. The book was a lot more about chaos theory and things getting out of control, but nature kind of doing that. And the genetic engineering of the monsters was part of that. So should we be layering in this metaphor level to bring a deeper element? And how do we do that? Sure. I think that really what that idea of sort of monsters as metaphors is monsters are that thing that's out of control. And that's really what Jurassic Park was all about. Like you said, it's that chaos theory of we're doing this thing because we can. We figured out how to to clone dinosaurs, but no one really ever thought through what does that mean exactly. We're introducing these giant predatory animals into our world. And are we really ready for that? I think people in general, like humans, are pattern-seeking creatures right? We look for patterns in everything. It's one of the ways we survive, right? We can see the pattern in the seasons. And so that allows for agriculture and that kind of thing. So we're always about pattern identification. And when a monster is then thrown into that, this force of chaos, that pattern is interrupted. So our daily lives are interrupted or the scientists who think, well, we'll do this and then we'll put these genes together and we'll make this creature and then we'll put it in a cage. Awesome. That'll be great. And then that animal then has its own set of patterns that come into conflict with those people. So sometimes monsters can be so obviously a metaphor for something. My favorite metaphorical monster has got to be Godzilla, which if you've seen the original Japanese Godzilla, the very first one, and not the one that was edited in America and had an American actor stuck in there and that really trimmed out a lot of the political stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Godzilla was definitely, we sort of went on this little adventure, and in that case it was doing atomic testing, and we roused this thing, this mindless, primitive, barbarian thing, then just came and literally crushed everything and just destroyed everything and blasted us with atomic fire breath. And I think it's when you sort of sit back and see that as, a Japanese movie from the mid-50s, less than, in some cases, I really, I think it was 
I want to say it was like 1954, so less than 10 years after the end of World War II. Mm. It's pretty clear what Godzilla represents, right? (laughs) You know, it's the thing that we we poked this thing and it just destroyed everything. It just literally walked through and burned everything down. At the moment, I mean, as you say, we're recording this during lockdown. And I feel like obviously Trump calls it the invisible killer. And (laughs) we're all in our homes sheltering from something we can't even see. And I wonder what will come out of this. I mean, it's almost on the nose to write a pandemic thriller, right? (laughs) (laughs) But we'll come out of it as a monster. In fact, there are um, obviously there are invisible monsters and stuff like that. But a case of kind of taking a theme or taking the idea of that we want to write about and then creating something that might represent that in a type of monster. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's really what zombies are in particular. It's a plague. It's the thing that essentially is an invisible force behind there that this thing bites me and I'm infected in some way. And everyone who's bitten by a zombie is infected by that. Vampires tend to be the thing that sucks your blood and infects you with this, whatever it is, turns you into a vampire or turns you into a slave, a sort of undead slave. I think that there has been this sense of the plague monster for really ever. Certainly going back to the Black Plague in that time, and this idea that evil is sort of passed from person to person and that there can be this invisible force that we don't even understand that transforms us into monsters and then kills us. So I think well before the coronavirus, this has been part of horror literature, at least, and fantasy and science fiction as well. What if, right? Michael Crichton, who also wrote Jurassic Park, wrote one of his first novels, I think it was his first novel, was The Andromeda Strain, which imagined a a virus from space coming down on a satellite and the scientists trying to figure out what this thing even was and prevent it from spreading all over the world. So that, you know, I think the idea of an out-of-control pandemic has been in that consciousness for a really long time. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. So when we're constructing our monsters, what are the important things that we need to decide upon in order to construct the rules of of the world? Mm -hmm. Starting out with everything, and this is what I I sort of harp on with authors all the time, right, is why is this in the story in the first place? I work with a lot of authors who are at varying stages of their careers and experience levels, and most of the first-time authors or people who are sort of starting to get into it tend to want to throw stuff in. We're just going to put in as many elements as we possibly can. So for me, the really question is, why is the monster in the story in the first place? If it's just there because you think monsters are fun, well, so do I. You know, I think (laughs) you could maybe sell that to me, but most people are going to wonder why all of a sudden there's a monster. So how does the monster actually move the story forward? Is it an obstacle to be overcome? Does it demand something of the characters? Does it say, this is your opportunity, you're being forced into a position of either standing up to be the hero or laying down to be the villain or the victim? Does it play on our fears of what exactly? Is it the predator-prey relationship that I think everyone is sort of, every animal certainly is built in, has this built-in fight-or-flight response and has a sense of, what is that thing? Is it going to bite me? Is it going to eat me? Is it going to poison me? (laughs) And so does it just play on that? Or in some cases, like H.P. Lovecraft, for instance, is still 
being read today because he wrote stories where the monster was not something that you could beat. You couldn't find the weakness in it and then figure out, oh, it's a silver bullet. Now we've got that sorted. And that played on our fear of, hey, maybe we're not the masters of the universe. Maybe we don't have this thing all locked out. Maybe we are on this tiny little rock in this giant infinity, and out there are things that are just so beyond us that we have to only hope that they don't notice us. (laughs) Yeah, keep quiet. (laughs) And so a lot of it is sort of looking back at history and where was the culture at that time. And the monster will start to inform or be what is really informed by that time. So a hundred years ago, Lovecraft was in a world that was becoming aware of astronomy and cosmology in a way that a hundred years before that, they didn't necessarily have a grasp on. And it sounded pretty scary. It was pretty rough. You know? mm. <laughs> was, he was starting to understand that maybe we really are just kind of hanging out there and there could be anything out there on the horizon. And being a bit of a kind of a xenophobe in general, that I think that really worked at his fears of maybe we're not in charge. Maybe I'm not the guy who can control the world around me. So what is it, right? What do you want people to be afraid of, essentially? Do you want people to be afraid of something like the pandemic that has some people clearly behaving badly and some people clearly trying to do the right thing? And most of us are caught in between trying to figure out our place in this. But then beyond that, what the monster can do and what it can't do, what its weaknesses are, especially for a story that hinges on this is a problem we have to solve. And I did write about that a little bit in writing monsters, that there are some stories, a lot of monster stories, in in fact, that sort of begin as a horror story. And I think Jaws is a great example of this. For about half of the movie, we don't see the shark. We see the results of the shark. We see the people being pulled underwater. It pulls the dock away from the beach and so on. And we know that something terrifying is under there. And then once they identify what this is, and they find the fishermen and they all get on the boat and they go off to actually kill the shark, the whole movie changes. And this is like a great testament to Spielberg as a filmmaker, right? The music changes from that ominous pulsing to this sort of triumphant kind of almost bugles and sea shanties. and stuff. <laughs> and it, becomes, <laughs> it stops being a horror movie and it becomes a maritime adventure story. So is that what you're going for, right? The monster is terrifying until we realize, aha, this is what we do. And then it turns into an adventure story. To some degree, the movie Alien, right, is a horror story with a monster that is flipping that predator-prey relationship. So now something that we can't kill is hunting us. It's taking away our natural weaponry. We can't just shoot it or its blood will destroy our ship and we'll all die, things like that. Mm. Then Aliens, the sequel, is the second half of Jaws. It's like, okay, now we know what this thing is, what it can and can't do. Let's go kill it. And, of course, complicated by the fact there's now 500 of them or something. (laughs) (laughs) So so I think that sort of two movies that put together is is sort of equals Jaws, right? The monster is now identified. What do we do? They're not less scary, necessarily. The fact that there's lots more of them make them scary. Mm, Actually, I really like that because you've definitely shown different things there in terms of is the monster something we already know how to kill and now we just have to go kill it. I even think even like Wilbur Smith, for example, those are action adventure books, but he often has wild lions and things come and kill Mm. people. So you know 
what the monster is. But what you're saying is also there's these monsters where we don't even know. And the Lovecraft stuff is interesting because you've given a number of examples there. So you say Lovecraft, people think tentacles, right? They think Cthulhu. And then you say Jaws and you think big teeth. And we say Jurassic Park and people have the dinosaur. So with all of these monsters, kind of archetypal monsters in our heads... How do we create something new or original when so much has already been done? Right. Well, first of all, all of those things that have been done, or we'll say most of those things, I tend to have kind of a zombie aversion, at least now I think, okay, like I get it. (laughs) But that's a kind of an interesting example of one work, right? The movie Night of the Living Dead then created an archetype. That's a relatively new concept, I think. But for things like whether it's a vampire or a werewolf or a dragon, something like that, those are all free for everybody to just grab from mythology and legend and fairy tales and so on. But one of the things I talked about in the book and elsewhere is this idea of thinking of it as a recording studio mixing board so that if you have a werewolf story that you want to tell, now that you're the challenge for each individual author is to make that my werewolf, right, which is different from your werewolf, which is going to be different from Stephen King's werewolf and so on. So where do you, so everybody has a sense of what this thing is, what it can and can't do, how to kill it and so on. So start changing that, mix that up a little bit and just sort of do your best to make it your own. And even then, I think humans, we're just natural monster-making machines. It's something that's really in our DNA. It's kind of what it goes to our survival instinct, that we can't just be a good predator. We have to be the only predator. When we move into an area, we make it our own. And there's no, there, we're, we really don't allow for hunting. <laughs> in that no hunting allowed in my suburban neighborhood. So when people see coyotes, it becomes a problem. Not because I'm worried that a coyote is going to attack me, but I have small dogs, right? Mm. Like, get out of here, coyotes. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's just, it's something that is sort of ingrained in us because I think it's better from a survival standpoint to imagine that a monster, if there's something moving in the darkness you can't see and you hear something moving around, it's better to imagine that that's a monster and be ready to defend yourself than assume it's a squirrel and be taken by surprise by a leopard. Oh, yeah. Well, that brings us to something else, which is the unseen monster. And you mentioned Stephen King's It, and obviously for anyone who hasn't read it, we're no spoilers, but we don't see the actual thing until near the end. And I always found that it wasn't as scary as what I had imagined. (laughs) And perhaps is that a truism as well, that if you reveal it too soon, it's not as scary I guess we've seen it in action and uh, like we have with Jaws, for example, you see the body parts, you don't see the monster. So would that be a tip for writing? I mean, keep it hidden or when do we reveal it? Absolutely. And that's a big part of the book, actually, is that idea of staging the reveal of the thing. So if it's just right away, it jumps out and you've described it in extreme detail and characters quickly or immediately figure out, and I've seen this a lot in fantasy, in particular in science fiction, where the characters instantly identify what it is, as though they're walking around with the monster manual, and they go, ah, it's <laughs> what, you know, that? Then that's a very different sort of story. Now that is, essentially, we've been attacked by a leopard, or we've been attacked by a shark. Now we know what to do. And, and that can still be an entertaining story. It can still be a great adventure story. But it really stops being a monster right away. 
So staging this thing in like they did in Jaws, which of course was a great happy accident that the mechanical shark didn't work and they didn't have it available for most of the filming of the movie. So he had to figure out how to not show the shark. And it ended up being a very, I think, a great accident that made that movie a thousand, a million times better. So the less you show, the better, right? And just show it the effect of the thing. What is it actually doing? And you want to stage it a little bit at a time. And you definitely see that in all of the most effective horror movies in particular. Like you only see sort of little bits of things and it actually ramps up. It's the face hugger and then it's the little thing that they think they're looking for. It's about the size of the cat. And then it's this big thing that's moving around in the air ducts and they can only see it in little snatches and don't really understand what it's doing and things like that. So exactly how you stage that monster in, really, it depends on the story that you're telling. Is it just an adventure about let's fight some monsters? Then great, right? That's the Dungeons and Dragons approach, right? (laughs) It's about the fight and it's about the number of monsters that you throw in there. And again, I'm in on that. That's great. But if the story depends on the one monster continuing to be scary throughout, then you want to put it in in teaspoonfuls as you go. Mm, fantastic. So we're going to change direction, but the book is Writing Monsters. So for everyone listening, I think it is brilliant. I've got it here on my desk. It's got lots of pages turned on it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's great. That's great. I want to write tons of monster books. But I did want to ask you, I didn't front ask about you and how you got into writing. But I wonder if you'd tell us a bit more about your ecosystem, because many people listening want to make a living with their writing. So tell us, what is your career? Because you do so many things, right? What does your career look like right now? And what are your multiple streams of income? (laughs) Right now, it seems like a little bit of everything. So I guess we can kind of work our way backward. But right now, I'm freelance editor and writing coach. And I work with individual clients. And again, through a huge range of experience levels, right, from people who are literally just starting out, to veteran authors who've been doing it for a long time. And then I have some corporate clients and do some consulting work there. And I write a lot about writing, and I've been teaching online courses in writing. Those are kind of in a transition period where I'm shifting over to a different host for those. So keep an eye on my social media for when those are going to start ramping up, hopefully by the end of this year. But, you know, I think that's what I think if you want to really do this for a living, It is certainly possible to be the next J.K. Rowling and just sort of scribble out this great book that was rejected X number of times until somebody says, hey, this is really good. And then voila, you're a billionaire. (laughs) (laughs) The chances of that happening are super slim. You know, I think the fact that you can count off on one hand the number of really huge franchise authors who are working at any given time is a pretty good tell that that's not just something that happens. It's not sort of the automatic thing. I've written a book, so therefore I'm a big famous author and a millionaire. What I try to advise people as much as I can is think of yourself as a content provider. If you're a storyteller first, then yes, definitely be writing that novel, but also be writing short stories and write anything you want to and anything you can and get it out there in any way possible. So I think we all have to have a day job. But if you do have to have a day job, can your day job be like my day job, which was an editor? (laughs) So that I'm basically doing what I do at work and at home and everywhere. I know a lot of writers are kind of coming in through the video game business. 
which is so huge and it has a big need for writers. It's a different kind of writing. It can be kind of hard and, it, and it's hard to sort of find your own voice in those a lot of times. I think it's a great way to make a living while you're also doing writing that great American novel. And that's what I have been doing at least for the last 10 years since I left Wizards of the Coast was just what might interest me. So I do ghost writing. There are books out there that you would never know. I'm contractually obligated not to tell you <laughs> <laughs> that I had anything to do with. And I think that's great. There are a lot of people who are like, no, I would never do that. Well, I would try it. Right? Pays the bills. <laughs> exactly. And that's the thing. And now this is, I'm making a living doing this, right? I don't also wait tables. Well, I'm a writer, but I'm actually managing a record store, which was a pretty cool job. But, <laughs> you know, that was really what I was doing most of the time. You know, I think what you do is you walk through the door that's open. And if you approach this as I'm either going to be the next George R. R. Martin or forget it, then forget it. Because the chances of just willing that into places is essentially zero. <laughs> and it's interesting that you brought up George R. R. Martin, because, of course, he's an older guy now and he's been writing for decades. So right. he only became, like, became in inverted commas, George R. R. Martin when the TV show kind of took off. And that's when he became a sort of mega brand name author, famous outside of a particular niche, right? So he got super famous <laughs> quite late. Mm -hmm. But I love your business model. I'm very similar. I have lots and lots of things. But you mentioned Wizards of the Coast from your website, Athens and Associates. You also have worked with Dungeons and Dragons and Pixar. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, these are some awesome companies around <laughs> licensing. And licensing, like you mentioned, gaming, sort of licensing mm -hmm. intellectual property seems to be one of the ways in which we can move into bigger than just, say, self-publishing an ebook on Amazon, which is where many people start. But any thoughts on this sort of positioning IP for licensing, thinking yeah. much bigger? It can be really, really difficult as well, because absolutely this is true that everyone wants to see their fantasy novel or their fantasy series become the next Game of Thrones. Why wouldn't you? You want your science fiction series to be The Expanse. That's definitely less impossible now than it was 10 or 15 years ago or so, because there's so much content being created. And I think that's very exciting times for everybody. There are opportunities now with all the sort of TV streaming and things like that that didn't exist in the rarefied Hollywood atmosphere of 20 years ago. But still, it's such a distant possibility. Really, the best thing to do for any author is just concentrate only on the one thing that you have any control over whatsoever. And that's the quality of your work. You know, none of us have any control over the coronavirus and what that may or may not be doing to the publishing business, what the publishing business is going to look like after this. We certainly don't have any control over the global economy, things like that. We have no control over trends and what all of a sudden is going to seem dated or what is going to be the next big thing. But we do have control over the quality of our writing. So start with that. And if you've written the best book you can possibly write, Readers will find you. And after the readers find you, maybe movies, video games, and all that stuff will come with it. Mm -hmm. And that is exactly what J.K. Rowling and George R.R. R. Martin did. They wrote the best books they possibly could. And the audience found them. They also wrote really, really long fantasy series. So that might be another tip. 
<laughs> but again, is that I'm not sure that that trend, right? Some of these things are unreproducible. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and J.K. Rowling had some really interesting timing issues at the beginning of the internet where kids were talking to each other in ways that they weren't able to before. It was possible to build buzz in ways that didn't exist in literally six months before that. <laughs> and then George R. R. Martin was plucked out of, hey, it's actually possible to make dragons that look convincing. It's actually possible with digital effects to do this and make a TV series that looks like this, where so much science fiction and fantasy in particular had always sat on the shelf because how could we possibly realize this? How could we possibly make this into a movie? Mm. I just don't know how to make these special effects. No, exciting um, times for those are. of us um, writing monsters. So, Phil, that was great. Yeah. We're out of time. So where okay. can people find you and everything you do online? Well, follow me on Twitter. That's at Phil Athens, and that's P-H-I-L-A-T-H-A-N-S. My blog is Fantasy Authors Handbook. That's updated every Tuesday. It's fantasyhandbook.wordpress.com. And then if you want to find me for... Editing, coaching, any of that good stuff, it's AthensAssociates.com. Again, A-T-H-A-N-S. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time, Phil. That was great. Thanks for having me. So I hope you found the interview with Philip interesting and fun. You can tell we had a good time because we were laughing so much. And I certainly want to write some more monster books. I have an idea for a short story I want to get to. Oh, there's ever so many ideas, so little time. But definitely check out Phil's book, which is super useful for writing monsters. Now, next week, I have a great interview with the wonderful Lindsay Baroka, one of the most prolific and successful indie fantasy authors out there and co-host of the Six Figure Author podcast, which is highly recommended. We are talking about writing series and Lindsay has tons of great tips as she is very good at this. So happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.